from India's largest newsroom. I'm Arun George, and this is the Times of India podcast. on this path and today in Sharmal Shak this journey has achieved its first positive milestone The news headlines in India may have been dominated by murder in upcoming state elections but till Sunday the 6th of November this year's COP or conference of the parties was taking place The annual UN event features delegates from across the world gathering to discuss how we can unitedly battle the effects of global warming and climate change. If you were tracking the meeting, you know that the meeting like many before it didn't end on the scheduled day. It ran 2 days extra before tired delegates from across the world agreed on the action plan for this year until they meet next year. I now declare the conference closed. <laughs> Vishwa Mohan is the Times of India's environment editor and reports on climate change. He's attended all the COPs and was at the Sharmel Sheikh event in Egypt as well. Vishwa says it's normal for these events to go beyond their scheduled date. We asked him if that was because everyone was trying to figure out a deal in just 12 days. So here's Vishwa explaining the long-drawn process that takes place before each COP despite which it often goes beyond schedule. no basically there has been number of work programs and under those work programs countries have been continuously discussing it at different forums even the pre cop happens when the countries discuss on certain issues and uh, uh, this cop generally happened for 12 to 13 days and which generally uh, drags on to 14 days or uh, 15 days 195 countries different blocks they have a different points every countries look at their own interest own domestic compulsions so when they come at the table they come with their own priorities and all the countries express their own priorities then eventually come out with a larger draft for example if india says something australia says something us says something all these things are there in the proposals and one by one they just shortlist all these things they discuss it and then arrive at the uh, uh, final uh, outcome so it's not easy uh, it's a round the clock uh, round the year process and then they finally arrive at the annual conference where these kind of decisions have been taken in today's episode we're speaking with vishwa mohan and iied's ritu bharadwaj about the achievements and failures of this year's cop or cop a quick round up on where we stand with regard to climate change The world is currently 1.1 degrees Celsius warmer than it was in the 1800s. The decade between 2011 and 2020 was the warmest ever decade recorded. We have enough evidence to indicate that we need to limit the global temperature rise to not more than 1.5 degrees Celsius to avoid the worst climate impacts. But despite nations promising net zero carbon emissions and many other things, we're currently looking at a 2.8 degrees Celsius temperature rise by the end of this century. That's 1.3 degrees more than we planned. As we've discussed in previous episodes, this could well mean more heat waves, unpredictable rainfall patterns, and other extreme climate events that would make our lives more difficult. So now you know why the stakes are high and these talks matter. But Vishwa explains that this is a long, slow process. 
Bishwas says this time negotiations were particularly intense given it wasn't just about emissions but also brought to the fore a concept that's never been explored seriously before a loss and damage fund so this time it happened for the first time when the loss and damage issue was put on the agenda and when this loss and damage issues put on the agenda so it was very clear that uh, it is not going to be very smooth negotiations uh, because developed countries have their own reservations and even among the developing countries the small island nations the most vulnerable countries have their own points uh, so negotiations mostly revolve around uh, whether to establish a fund for loss and damage for everyone knew that uh, the negotiations will not be smooth around the loss and damage and other points were also there on the surface india china and other developing countries have their own points developed countries have their own points even even the european unions nations countries within the european unions have a different divergent views on the issue of uh, whether to phase down all the fossil fuels whether to concentrate on coal so we were expecting that it will drag on it will drag on till the end uh, but nobody was expecting that Uh, finally the deal uh, would arrive at uh, uh, on the creation of the loss and damage funding here's the simplest sort of explanation for this loss and damage fund it's a fund that's meant to compensate those from poor countries suffering the worst impacts of climate change the idea is that if a poor country is affected by a massive flood or drought or any unusual weather event it should be able to draw from this fund to pay for its recovery In the second half of this episode we're doing a bit of a deep dive on the problems with this fund with Ritu Bharadwaj so please bear with us like China India has been playing a bigger role at these meetings often speaking up for developing nations Bishwas says at the latest meeting India stuck to its stand that it couldn't stop using coal anytime soon he also explains what India's stand was on the loss and damage fund if if you could recall that cop 26 which happened in glasgow last year uh, basically the countries uh, agreed for phasing out coal not the phasing down coal so india at that time uh, put its foot down uh, india said that it should not be phasing out coal because uh, you know india has its own domestic compulsions they are not going to curtail coal as fast as the different countries wants india to do so india in fact uh, intervened and got the wordings in the in the text changed from phase out coal to phase down coal what happened this time when the text came again the phase out coal was there so india again resisted and uh, brought it down to phase down coal secondly uh, as far as the loss and damage is concerned india is perfectly okay with the idea it's good for india that uh, this fund is being created there are two points on the loss and damage fronts uh, because the country uh, the rich countries they have been arguing that the big economies like india and china should also contribute to this fund which the india and china resisted they vehemently opposed to it so india is not going to pay for the fund this is what the current position is it will be negotiated further and uh, the countries will arrive at the conclusion next year who will pay secondly there was one point that 
only the most vulnerable countries among the developing countries will be beneficiaries of this fund. Uh, obviously, uh, India don't mind supporting the most vulnerable countries, but India's argument is India also has vulnerable areas. If you look at the coastal areas, look at the Sundarbans, we have also so many islands. So if something happens, the India should also be benefited from it. But these are the issues which can be resolved uh, uh, during the next one year. And during the next COP, it will be finalized who all will fund. But definitely, India and China will not uh, agree for the mandatory contribution to the loss and damage fund. And they will also argue that they should also be benefited from it. Vishwa says India also got its message on sustainable consumption in the final announcement of the meeting, which is a matter of pride. The biggest takeaway was India got the sustainable lifestyle points in the covered decision text of this COP27. Uh, the West has been mindlessly using the resources. Their carbon footprints are much, much more than the uh, developing countries. So India has been pitching these lifestyle issues for long that uh, uh, rich countries must adopt the sustainable lifestyle so that uh, it can help in reducing the carbon footprints. So this point come into the cover text of the COP and that is very big takeaway uh, from India's point of view. Many criticisms of the latest COP were about the fact that it achieved too little. Vishwa says history might be a bit kinder and this edition of COP will be remembered for finally creating the Global Loss and Damage Fund. It's, it's one of the memorable COP. In fact, it will go down well in the history because Loss and damage fund is not a small thing. It's very big. It's very big. This COP always be remembered for uh, the loss and damage fund uh, for a COP which can support the uh, vulnerable countries. But besides this, other points uh, are still there where it was there during the last COP or the earlier COP. Very little money on the table when we look at the climate finance countries has promised that uh, that uh, rich countries will come out with 100 billion dollar per year uh, from 2020 uh, onwards and they promised it in 2009 13 years ago but till now if you look at the uh, calculations of the OECD till now only 83 billion dollar come to the table and even the, uh, among these in this 83 billion dollar uh, uh, mostly that more than 50 percent are the private finance uh, so uh, uh, whatever they promised they have not delivered Vishwa also admits the world could have done more in this round of negotiations given the dire warnings about the world missing its temperature targets and there being no real idea on how to slow the earth's warming if you look at the mitigation aspect, it's uh, basically it's missed the point. India made it clear that don't make only one fossil fuel a uh, villain because all the fossil fuels are emitting and all the fossil fuels are responsible for uh, uh, global warming. Uh, so uh, uh, if you look at this point, the countries could not arrive at phasing down all fossil fuels. So in that way, you can say uh, uh, this COP missed it big time. And uh, it will drag on further. It is not going to be easy for the countries to agree on phasing down all the fossil fuels. 
the next cough will happen in the UAE, the oil producers, and obviously the Middle East countries, they won't agree for uh, the phasing down of fossil fuels. Despite all these letdowns, loss and damage fund, in fact, uh, uh, supersedes everything. As Vishwa explained, the loss and damage fund is the biggest decision to emerge after two weeks of intense negotiations. London-based Ritu Bharadwaj is a principal researcher on climate governance and finance at the think tank International Institute for Environment and Development. She agrees with the fact that the loss and finance fund is a big deal. And here she explains why. There are communities and countries which are suffering because of climate impacts. We typically think that, you know, if we take proper adaptation measures, if we, if we plan for it properly, we can avoid those impacts and, and, and damages that countries and communities are suffering. But because the global warming has got increased to a level that it's, some of these impacts are irreversible. There is sea level rise happening. It's irreversible. Those areas which are underwater, they're not going to be reclaimed anymore. So communities who are at the front line of these impacts, they are pushed into displacement. They are suffering losses and damages, things that are irreversible, irrecoverable. It's only now in this COP and the last COP that it actually started getting recognized. Yet a lot, many people know that loss and damage has been in the discussion within UNFCCC almost three decades back, even before we started discussing adaptation, because there were many countries which were facing existential crisis because of sea level rise. Um, Indonesia, for example, 30% of it is already underwater. In India, not many people know, but we're doing our research in an area where seven villages were already underwater and the places where those people had moved to, even they were, are facing another round of displacement. So for them, this decision is really important. The, the fact that loss and damage is now in the mainstream, it has been picked up for the first time uh, um, as an important agenda within the UNFCCC was a big win for us. At least for the first time, the developed countries acknowledged that loss and damage is happening because of climate impacts. Two, they are responsible for it. And three, they've agreed to establish a new and additional source of fund. But yes, uh, while momentous, while a big win, there are still many loose ends around it. But while the fund is a great idea, Ritu Bharadwaj is among those who's not overly thrilled about how little has been decided about it. For one, the fund has no money in it just yet. It will only be at COP28 that will be held in 2023 where the proposed details will be revealed. Then it will be debated and possibly debated some more. The fact that they acknowledged it, that this loss and damage is happening and there is a requirement for fund is important for us. But when the actual fund would really start flowing is a big, big question mark for us. We really have to dissect it a little. They said a fund can be created, but there's no commitment to how much finance would be there. When it will start flowing, uh, how um, uh, and who will access it and how they can access it. They just said there's particularly vulnerable countries will be, will be targeted, but how are they going to really define particularly vulnerable? Can countries like India, Pakistan, Bangladesh, would we qualify? We, it's not very clear. 
So firstly that. Secondly, we have our experience from the, uh, the Green Climate Fund, which is currently financing adaptation. If you look at that, on an average, a country which does not have accreditation to that fund takes about five and a half years to actually get access to any kind of funding support. We do not want the same to happen for loss and damage because loss and damage is a bit different from adaptation because loss and damage occurs, occurs because of rapid onset events like cyclones and floods. But it also occurs because of slow onset events like sea level rise for which we need to prepare in advance. And for those kind of impacts, it's, it's not feasible for countries to wait for five and a half years to develop a proposal, submit there and wait for the funding to come through. Uh, we've all seen the recent floods in Pakistan. We have seen two unprecedented uh, flooding events in India. Would India have waited for five and a half years to actually get any source of finance from there? Ritu Bhardwaj has worked with communities across regions affected by climate change events. She says a major climate change event has two effects. It forces people to move and it affects their physical and mental health. She describes the research in two areas of India, one affected by flood and the other by drought. She explains how the poorest end up paying for climate events that they have made the least contribution to and also results in them facing exploitation. We, we conducted research in India uh, in two places. One, which was impacted by drought in Palamu in Jharkhand. And the second was in Kendrapada in Odisha, uh, which is affected by uh, floods and cyclones. You would say that drought used to occur earlier also. Floods and cyclones came earlier also, even before we started discussing about climate change. But now what's happening, this intensity and the frequency of the same event increases to such an extent that communities are no longer able to absorb the impact of those or recover from them. Um, if you look at Bay of Bengal, Bay of Bengal used to receive one cyclone in two years. Now they receive two cyclones in one year. So there's a limit to which they can continue to absorb the impact and keep recovering from it. If you look at the slow onset event, like Palamo in, in Jharkhand, which is impacted by drought, that area is has been subjected to drought but now the intensity has increased. The, the area which used to be impacted has increased. The frequency has increased. That, that communities were suffering huge amount of losses and damages. And, and when they were not provided, so typically the government provides them social protection, social safety net uh, in times of these distress and crisis. Um, in India, uh, especially, we have this huge uh, MGNRDGS program, a program that guarantees 100 days of wage employment. That's the biggest public works-based social protection program globally. But even that program failed to provide support to communities. But then when you don't have that social uh, safety net, communities, when they lose their livelihoods, when their uh, uh, crops are destroyed, they're forced to undertake distress migration to support their livelihood from other sources. Their bargaining power reduces, and then they get subjected to modern slavery-like situation like dead bondage, uh, exploitative working condition, forced labor, and even trafficking. Typically, when an area receives uh, a flood or cyclone, it you know the media covers that news much in, in much greater length, uh, and that creates political pressure to and, and humanitarian response and other uh, support moves into that area. 
Whereas in case of slow onset event area, it almost acts like a slow poison. There is no support for them. And then we saw that in Palamo, where there was no relief, no response, child trafficking had become rampant. Women, young women and girls, they were post forced into prostitution and trafficking. These people have done nothing to cause climate change and they are facing the impact of it. And when finance doesn't reach them, they have to shell out, they have to meet uh, the, the cost of uh, climate inaction through their own pockets. Like you said that this fund was first proposed as far back as 1991. Uh, we are now talking about it in 2022. Uh, why has it been on hold all these years? So one, in 1990, it wasn't a fund that was proposed. It was for the first time brought within the UNFCCC negotiation by the small island development states because they were pushed to existential crisis. They pushed for compensatory justice for countries who have caused uh, global warming to pay for compensation for the losses and damages that they were suffering. At least they can buy land. For example, many countries are buying uh, uh, land in New Zealand to resettle their population. So how do they pay for it? And that's for that uh, they were asking for compensation from the developed countries. But it was always a contentious issue because uh, the developed countries wanted to never agree to any kind of compensation because that would have opened them up to pay up for these compensations. But for the first time in last COP, they agreed to acknowledge loss and damage. It was very clear to the vulnerable countries that it is not going to lead anywhere. And that's why they pushed within this COP that the financing for loss and damage should be picked up and should be covered as a main agenda within the uh, negotiation space. And that really led to some actions. But then again, there is a delaying tactics. They're saying fund is there, but there's no finance in it. And they're saying to unpack how this fund should be devolved, what the sources of finances should be, and so on and so forth. And again, there is no mention about compensatory justice, that, that countries which are suffering loss and damage should be compensated. Uh, so they're just saying we will support, but there's no use of this word compensation there. Ritu Bhardwaj explains how this proposed fund would work and also how it should work. She also expressed her doubts about this fund and why developing countries need to do everything possible to get developed nations to pay. Essentially, it becomes like this sort of pool of funds from where people can put in money and the government sort of has access to it at any point that it needs it rather than waiting for something to be cleared. Yes. So what we are proposing uh, and what the least developed countries are proposing, they're saying that give us climate finance directly uh, based on our entitlement, based on the loss and damage we are suffering, but so that they can then combine it with a range of other sources. Because even right now, even in the absence of any sort of climate finance, these countries are already putting their own national budgets to dealing with that catastrophe or crisis or even seeking debt. So what they want is it should be left to them to combine these different sources of finance in a way that meets the need of the community. But that should be left to them rather than somebody asking them, provide, giving them their mandate that this is how you should be using the fund. 
So you mentioned this, but um, even the adaptation fund and the technology transfer fund, which was to see a hundred billion donation per year from the developed countries, hasn't really been met all these years. Uh, given that, would you be more optimistic about this fund? Absolutely not, Arun, because um, um, the the problem here is. Developed countries have have never uh, been true to their commitment so far. Um, and uh, we have not seen the adaptation fund flow in. And we don't have much hope that the, any sort of loss and damage fund would flow in and would be made available in a form that is easily accessible to the, uh, to the least developed countries or to the vulnerable developing countries. What we, but there's also something that the least developed countries or developing countries should be doing. Countries can demand. They can say that this is the loss and damage we are suffering. This is what we are already putting in. And this is the kind of finance and technical assistance and other support we need. So it's also an action on part of these vulnerable developing countries to, to properly account for loss and damage they are suffering, clearly explain what is the kind of funding sources they need? What is the kind of technology uh, support or other technical assistance they need? So when, uh, you know, global stock take is going to happen next year. So how do you pull up the developed countries that you have not paid for it? Unless you have a clear accounting, a clear assessment of this is what the the countries really need. And that can that should come from the countries themselves rather than an international research organization or some other country going and assessing, oh, this is the loss and damage they're suffering. This is the fund they should be needing. They can clearly hold up the developed countries that you have not paid up for these. And this is what we need. So that they can then also say that when this fund gets created, this loss and damage fund gets activated in COP28, you can say that this much of sources of fund would not be sufficient. We need this much. I was reading one article which said that this agreement seems to be more a result of sleep deprivation than actual consensus between the nations. Um, how do you view the outcome of COP27? So this COP in many sense was considered as COP for action uh, because many activist countries were saying that we must act now because they are suffering, the communities which are suffering on the front line. But what we have really seen as an outcome of this COP is initiation of new process, uh, delay tactics. Let's take decision in next COP, the COP after that, the COP after that. This is a fate we are probably going to see for loss and damage finance unless we really create that pressure on the developed countries. Because there is a limit to which countries can put in their own resources and their own budget. Many countries are spiraling into, uh, into debt, vicious cycle of debt. and that the cost of uh, debt for these countries is much higher compared to the developed countries. So how do these countries really cover for their losses if we don't act on it now? And from this COP, it is very clear that the action is not happening now. It's been deferred by a year. And we don't know whether it will be deferred again. This issue of loss and damage being deferred for last three decades. And this time, even though a fund has been announced, but we... It's, it's not a real fund. Today's episode was produced by Jairaj Singh, Sunai Marathe and Anuja Singh. For a daily spotlight on people, ideas and stories that matter, subscribe to us. 
We're available on TY Plus, Spotify, Apple, Google Podcasts, and all other platforms of your choice. For any news tips, email us at typodcast at timesinternet.in.